turn to your Bibles to uh, start off with the book of uh, Revelation, uh, chapter 22, actually, chapter 22. Verse number sixteen. I we've we've honored Pastor Wright a lot, but I think we can all agree the best way to honor him. I know this is kind of a special service, but would just be to have a little bit of church. We all we all know he likes church, so I do believe that I've I've come with a word this morning. Um, even though this is a special service, so I, I just ask that you you keep your hearts your your minds open the bible says that when jesus went back to nazareth after he began his ministry that he couldn't do any miracles there and uh, because they rejected him well i'm not jesus so just because i'm in nazareth does not mean that uh just because i'm at home so i pray that your spirits can be open so revelation 22 and uh we'll start with verse 16 The Bible says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angels to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come and let him that heareth say, come and let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Skipping down to verse twenty. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come. And then John says, if you have a if you have a Bible, those words are in red letters. But then the uh, John the Revelator writes, Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And uh, the next two passages I want to read is from uh, Psalm Psalm twenty seven, and um, verse one. A psalm of David. David writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat of my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord. And that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. And now shall my head be lifted up above mine eyes round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifice of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answered me. When thou saidst to me, seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, thy face, Lord, will I seek. Hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and mother forsake me, Then the Lord will take me up. And I don't have to read this one, but I just really want to because it's just such a good psalm. I mean, David was just on to something. And that's Psalm 63. It's a short psalm. And David writes, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, 
My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I lift up my hands in thy name. If we could lift up our hands all across this place right now from the front to the back. And just make ourselves willing and available for the word of the Lord. Father, first and foremost, I submit myself to your spirit, to the Holy Ghost. Your word says that it's by your power and your power alone working in me to do and to will that which is your good pleasure. So I submit to the power in me, oh God. I submit myself as a vessel, not just to bring a sermon, not just to bring enticing words of man, but to deliver your word. We open our minds, our hearts, and our spirits to what you have in store for us in this service today. We submit ourselves to you that whatever you want to do in us, through us, and to us, be it unto us according to your will in this place right now. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. God bless you. You may be seated. I'm going to have to get a little bit, so bear with me. We're going to have to take this slow at first because in order, and I promise I'll I'll only take as long as I need, but, um, (laughs) but in order to, to, to make a couple points, I have to lay some groundwork. It's a Sunday morning. We have a lot of guests. And so, um, you know what? I'm just going to come down here. And, uh, that being said, there's a couple things that we understand that a lot of people who don't really have an understanding of scripture might not. So the Bible theologians divide up. There's many. It's called dispensationalism. Uh, and the, the Bible theologians, they divide it up into seven primary dispensations. Seven being the number of God, which is funny because it has no relevancy. Because man made up the dispensations. They're not in the Bible. So it's, it's yeah. Anyways. <laughs> So the seven dispensations, they're not, like I said, you won't find the word uh, dispensation in scripture. Uh, it's, it's not there. It's All it is is simply titles that they've divided up time periods in to identify, makes studying a little bit more easier, um, and, and you can understand. So the seven dispensations are innocence, uh, conscience, human government, uh, promises, law, Grace, which we're currently living in, and then the seventh dispensation is the millennial kingdom, which is to come. So I guess it's not technically something that divides up history if it also is dividing up the future, which is also confusing. Anyways, so these dispensations, they divide it. So the first one we have innocence is the time. It's, it's pretty obvious the time of, of Adam and Eve in the Bible, which we don't know how long they were in the garden. The time of conscience is as after they've sinned and uh, and God reveals to them, well, the serpent ultimately deceives Eve and, and it's revealed unto Eve and they realize their nakedness is now the time of conscience. The time of human government is after the flood and then God's wiped out the earth all over again. And he starts from scratch with Noah and his family. Human government begins to be established. The time of promise is where Israel enters the scene, but also technically begins with Abraham. And God begins to give promises to Abraham. And then the time of promise 
ends when the children of Israel leave and they uh, make their exodus from Egypt. You can follow this in scripture, Exodus, only a, a, a portion of it, I'd say, I think if I remember correctly, about half of it really is them leaving Israel. But even at the end of Exodus, God starts giving to them the law, which is why the law begins. The time of the law spans from when the children of Israel left Exodus and God began speaking to them about the tabernacle. And as as my mother read, which was so powerful, and all of those things, he starts to give them the law to live by in these statutes and starts pressing to them the significance. And then the time of the law ends and the period of grace begins when Jesus dies on the cross, the beginning of the New Testament. The testator has now died. It's the start of the new covenant, which is then begins the birth of the church, which is 2,000 years, which is where we live today. Awaiting for the taking away of the bride of Christ, we call it the rapture, to go in the marriage feast. After the marriage feast, Jesus comes back to earth. There's the battle of Armageddon. After the battle of Armageddon, he sets up his kingdom in Israel. If I'm pacing too much, just let me know. I'll stop. And <laughs> and uh, after the... <laughs> now I feel like I have to stop. Uh <laughs> After the battle of Armageddon, he sets up his throne in Israel. We have the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. Satan's put into the the prison. And after that 1,000 years, Satan's released. Satan then tempts. Not everyone at earth at the time will be saved. So Satan then gathers together. He rallies the nations together. Has one final fight. He tries to... I have no idea why. And the fact that we know that he tries to do it and he still loses. And Satan can also know the scriptures because the devils know that it just none of it really makes any sense. The Bible is a confusing thing. Uh, He comes back and he rallies the nations together and he tries one last one last fight against Christ and the kingdom of the kingdom of God and his kingdom. And he obviously loses. After that, we go to the throne of grace, and then after the throne of grace, we're judged. All are judged equally, and uh, at that point, we then are spend our eternity with Christ. So the reason why this is important, the reason why I'm trying to break down a little bit of a Bible study in theology is because there's two dispensations, well, three dispensations I, I, I want to talk about today. That's the dispensation of grace, the law, or law, grace, and the millennial kingdom. The dispensations, they do divide up time, but they're also critical because they give you an understanding of how God was speaking to his people in that time. See, the Bible says God can't change, and we know that, and we quote that often, but the way that God speaks to his people does change, and that's evident through the covenant and the dispensations. Prior to the law, God was speaking to individuals like Moses and Joshua and Abraham, the Bible says that God spoke to Moses face to face. He had a, a very personal relationship with him. But then the law is introduced and the law spans, I believe it's about 1500 years. So, so 1500 years before this dispensation's over. Technically, the only communication that's possible to have from God is from the high priest. The Levites who man the tabernacle and, and, and they're the ones who perform the ceremony. And once a year they go into the presence of God, the holiest of holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. Man, brother, you, he's, he's really, those, those lessons have paid off. And so I was like, you guys don't understand, brother, you, man, all of this is literally just from sitting with brother, you. Uh, we have a lot of untapped resources here. They go into the holiest of holies once a year. 
Well, Israel's kind of crazy, and if you read your Bible, you know that. So God then introduces the judges and the prophets. Now, the judges and the prophets, they, they actually do outside of this, this tabernacle. They have, uh, I, I honestly don't understand all of this, but they, they also hear from God. And God speaks through them. Somehow God breathes through them. They don't have to be in the holiest of holies, but the spirit of God moves on them. The Bible says that Saul, before he became king, he was with the prophets and the spirit of God came upon him. He began prophesying. So we, we see this differentiation, but ultimately at the time of, of I'm going to try to keep the voice cracks to a minimum. Um, ultimately at the time of the law, the, if you were a citizen in, in, in Israel, you weren't a prophet. You weren't, let's just say, you know, theoretically, doesn't have anything to do with the message. If you were a shepherd, you weren't a prophet, so you weren't being used by God to speak to the people, and you weren't a priest. If you were, you know, let's take the hypothetical to a little bit further. If you were a shepherd, a part of the tribe of Judah, you definitely didn't have any, not association. You may have associated with Yahweh, but there was no account of you necessarily speaking to him on a personal basis. He spoke through the prophets and and the priests, when the high priest made the sacrifices. It's very critical we, we lay the groundwork for all of this because it's here that we find in the scripture, we find David, this, this young shepherd boy in, in a field. Cotton mouth, I'm still new at this. Um, we find this shepherd boy, and, and the thing that's so important about David is that David, he's it's hard to, it's so, you, you really can't put it into words. He's almost like a, like a, 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 a paradox, like this, this, it just, he doesn't belong. All he is, he's this, this young shepherd boy out in a field, but somehow he has this relationship with God. So this is what's so, it's so crazy because we read Psalms and I mean, you, you can feel it when you start to read this, the, the Psalms, I forgot to give you my title. My title is The Lord is My Shepherd. There we go. We got that, got that down. Gonna go back to the basics. Um, anyways, I'm gonna try to get serious. When we read the book of Psalms, we think it's so powerful and we relate to it so much. When we hear things like, The Lord is my strong tower. He hides me in his pavilion. When the enemy is round about, the Lord will protect me. And you see, for Israel, that made sense, but Israel wasn't writing that. A shepherd boy out in the field was. David, David's relationship with God literally did not make sense. We read what he wrote. Oh God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee in a dry and, and, and weary land. My flesh longeth for thee. How we got his flesh to long for God, I will never understand. But he wrote that. This shepherd boy in a field. You see, other citizens, other people weren't riding at. More than likely, no one else in his family was riding at. The house of Jesse, I mean, taking another step back, looking at scripture at this time, the story of David begins with Samuel. Samuel being called into, into the tabernacle and into ministry. Then Samuel becomes a prophet and he gives, he, he then anoints Saul and Saul becomes the king. But what you have to understand is that when Samuel, <laughs> When Samuel was, was called to the ministry, Israel was in a terrible place. Go read it. It's in, it's in 1 Samuel. It's in the first chapters of 1 Samuel. The Ark of the Covenant was stolen from Israel. The most valuable thing. Israel was nothing without that. 
All they were was based off of their relationship with the one true living God. And they couldn't even keep that. The most valuable thing that they had was stolen. And it's here where we pick up the story of Samuel. The Ark of the Covenant is stolen. Eli, the high priest, his sons, who are also priests, are out of control. They're lost. Israel has no value for the presence of God. And it's here, it's in this setting. More than likely, David, he was born into this. He probably wasn't alive at the time, but he was born into this atmosphere of the things of God being devalued. I, I, I preached on this before, but just to, just to stress the significance of this, it's interesting because we read the story about Martha. And, and I'm sorry. Yeah, Martha was the mother of Samuel, correct? No, it was Hannah. Sorry, Martha was Jesus. Anyways, um, still new at this. We read, we read the story about Hannah, and it's so interesting to me. Hannah begins praying in the, in the tabernacle, and, uh, Eli, the high priest, he watched her praying, and this is so, because this, this is so crazy, it just stresses this point so much. And he, Eli perceives her to be drunk by the way that she's praying. And it's so interesting that Eli doesn't go up to her, he doesn't call the other, he doesn't rally all the high priests and tell her to get out. He just, he walks up to her really calmly. And says, put away your wine. Hold up. She's in the house of the Lord. And he perceives her to be drunk. Defiling the things of God. And all he can do is approach her really politely, really nicely. He doesn't want to step on her toes. And just says, hey, hey, you know, put away your wine. Why? Because the things of God were so devalued at the time that apparently drunkards were allowed in the temple. Because he didn't really act like it was a new thing. It's in this setting we find David. What's so critical is that David had a relationship with God that was outside of his dispensation. Well, he writes the things that he writes about God. We relate to because we're in the time of grace. We are the high priests. The temple... This is the temple right here. God lives inside of us. But at the time, God wasn't living inside of anyone else. And it's in this setting we find David saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside the still waters. How is that possible? Well, I've come to talk about how it was possible today. Because what David does is, not only is he so important, but he provides a prototype of a relationship with God. I was so nervous about preaching this message because I'm going to be honest, I'm way in over my head. Because what I'm about to talk to you about is a hypothetical that I am yet to achieve or really seen anyone achieve personally. But it's a principle in scripture, so it's possible. David had a hunger for God that was like no other. We see this in his poetic expressions in the Psalms. What you don't understand is that David, we read and we quote it all the time. He writes, one thing have I desired and this will I seek after. To dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Slight problem, David, you've never been in the house of the Lord. How are you desiring to dwell in it? He never stepped foot around the Ark of the Covenant. He... He didn't set foot in the holiest of holies. He definitely didn't set foot in the holy place. He never tasted the shoe bread. Up until that point, it's likely, it, it could be possible. He hadn't even laid eyes on the Ark of the Covenant if he was young enough and 
as I just stated, knowing, knowing Israel at this time, one thing have I desired and this will I seek after that I may dwell. And we quote these scriptures all the time. All the time. All, all, all of these things because we can relate to them because it's the God that we know. David was not supposed to know that God. He was Jehovah Elohim. He was, he was all these names for Jehovah, but he was not a shepherd. And David writes this. The key, the key about David is he developed a hunger for God beyond what he knew to be possible. This moved God so much that he watched this shepherd in a field and said, oh, I've got to get to know him. Oh, I've got, I've got to start fellowshipping with him. Oh, I'm going to start. Well, uh, I'm going to start revealing parts of myself to this young boy because he's got a hunger for me that I've never seen before. I'm going to tell you right now and then watch this. The first scripture I read to you in Revelation, Jesus is speaking to John the Revelator. He says, he says, I am the root and the offspring of David. Can I tell you that David's hunger moved God so much that he said, well, I'm going to use him to come down. I'm not, there's a principle. Well. There's a principle in scripture right here. You want to know why Jesus isn't manifested in your life? Where's the hunger? Psalm 27, he said, he said, the Lord said unto me, seek my face. And my heart said, slight problem, slight problem. God up until that time had no physical face. What was David seeking? But God said, seek the impossible. Seek what you can understand. If you can develop a things that are, if you can develop a hunger for things that are beyond, beyond your circumstances, beyond what everyone's telling you is possible, beyond what's going on around you. If you can develop a hunger for that, I'll manifest myself. I'll choose you as a vessel to come down. And a principle, a principle is established here. I've come to tell some parents today. My mom said it and she said it so well. I thought she was just going to preach for me. You want to know why Jesus isn't manifested in your kid's life? How long have you been seeking his face? How much time have you spent seeking the face of God? Because not only, not only will your hunger begin to, I'm standing here today because of a hunger of a past generation. And I'm standing here today because of the hunger that the generation before that had. And somebody along the lines decided, I've got to seek the face of God. I've got to seek the face of God. And because they sought the face of God, Jesus is manifested in my life. You want to know why Jesus is manifested in your life? How much time have you spent seeking the face? Where's the hunger at? 
Where's your hunger at? Where's it capping at? I read this scripture in Revelation for a reason. Because it's in this scripture we find. It's in this scripture we find. Not only does he talk about David, but then he goes on and then, and then he says, I'm coming quickly. And John responds, amen. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Come quickly. And it's here that we, we find that he goes from talking about David to talking about his return and coming back. All of this in, in, the, in the book of Revelations. Can I tell you, I believe that it's currently, I know he's on his own time and I know he's doing it. But one of the reasons I believe God, I believe that Jesus hasn't come back for his bride is that his bride isn't praying, Lord, come quickly. And here's why we don't pray it. All my life when I've heard that verse, I've, 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 I've heard it and subconsciously I've translated it that when we pray, even so, Lord, come quickly, it's because our circumstances are going to drive us to a point. That things are going to get so bad here that we're, the people of God are going to begin crying out. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Even so, Lord, come quickly. And we begin crying out. And I've, I've always just, I've always thought of it in, in the context of, of our circumstances. Because we know that as, as time goes on, this earth, it's only going to get worse. This world, it's not getting any better. I mean, we've experienced for the last two years now just how crazy it is. And I've always thought it's just gonna be, it's just, it's just gonna get so bad. It's just gonna be because when I hear verses like that, I don't know about you, I have flesh. When I hear verses like that, I think, whoa, I'm definitely not praying that. Why? Because I, I've got all these things in my life. And I say, nah, 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 ooh. hold on just a little bit longer, Jesus. We ain't got a girlfriend yet. We ain't got a wife yet. We ain't got grandkids for this great man yet. <laughs> just give it, give it a little bit more time. Hold on. Hold on. She said, keep it real. I'm going to have to. But watch this. When the global pandemic hit us, what was our favorite scripture to go to? Second Chronicles. But the context of Second Chronicles is very interesting because we always quote, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, then... Then, and, and then he goes into everything he'll do. But prior to that, if I remember correctly, that was at the dedication of the temple. Prior to that, the God speaks and he says, if I shut up heaven, that there be no rain. And he begins taking, what he, uh, what he does is, is he starts taking about, if I take away the needs that I supply for you. They depended Israel at the time in agricultural society. They depended on God for, for their harvest, for their food, for their crops to grow. So God is speaking to them and he's saying, well, if I take away the sun, if I take away the rain, if I shut up heaven, that there be no rain. And we love to quote it. It's so powerful. If my people, which are called by my name, slight problem, that's a need based prayer. And we, COVID, COVID-19 hit, and, and I, I really hate when people talk about COVID still, but I'm just going to do it. But COVID-19 hit, and our circumstances started changing, and what did we say? Oh, if my people, which are called by my name, 
shall humble themselves. And the principle of that scripture is correct. Yes, we should humble ourselves and pray. But the reason why we do it, it's, it's everything. And our circumstances started changing. And what did the people of God say? Oh, we've got to seek the face of God. Oh, we, we, we've got to, we, we've got to pray now. We've got to pray now. We, we, we've got to, we've got to humble ourselves and pray. Get the, somebody get the sackcloth and ashes out. Somebody, we've got to wear masks now. This is persecution for real. Somebody get the, and we began seeking and we began praying. But David, David wasn't like that. Because while God was telling Israel, if I shut up heaven, that there be no rain, he was telling David, Hey, seek my face seek my face and when Israel was praying need based well when Israel was praying need based prayers David was praying hunger based prayers he was praying prayers based off of the desires of his heart his heart responded to David and said thy face Lord will I seek all, all the while, Israel's over here. Israel's over here going, oh, if we humble ourselves and pray, maybe God will bring back the rain. David's going, ah, the will of God. I mean, more than likely, he probably sought the will of his father as his sustenance, just like Jesus did. He had a hunger for God. His relationship was outside. It, 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 was, it was so impossible in his dispensation. We read, I mentioned my title was Psalm 23. It's one of my favorite all-time favorite passages. Psalm 23, we can all quote it. Actually, let's all just go ahead and quote it. Psalm 23, the Bible says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We've talked about dwelling in the house of the Lord, and we've talked about his hunger. But, and I might lose a couple of you right here. David's hunger for the impossible drove him to a prophetic relationship with God. You see, we read this all the time and we see David, David writes, the Lord is my shepherd. And like I said, we read that scripture in the context of where we live today, the dispensation of grace. But put it on the screen again, Psalm 23 verse 1, everybody say it together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down. Psalm 23 verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not. Hold, hold up. Hold up right there. Right there. Psalm 23 verse 1. That's an impossible statement for to be in the dispensation of the law and say. <laughs> Watch this. David describes God as a shepherd. We read in other scriptures that the shepherd, he leaves the 99 and search for the one. In essence, it goes like this. David begins describing his relationship with God, takes him to a place where God starts revealing parts of him. And David's relationship with God goes to the point in which David starts describing God, Yahweh, Elohim, with father-like characteristics. Slight problem. There was no son. 
There was no manifestation of Jesus Christ. Yet God is revealing himself as a father. God begins revealing himself. This is what I am going to be. This is, well, this is what, you want to know what I have in store? Here's a prophetic relationship, David. Your hunger, it's, it's moved. It moved God so much that he started showing him parts of him that weren't meant to be seen yet. The Lord is my shepherd. He writes about this relationship with God, this so intimate, personal. Early in the morning will I seek thee. He was looking forward to it. His time with God was everything for him. That was impossible. It was so impossible. But what David had was a hunger. He had a hunger for God beyond what he knew was possible. Beyond what everyone around him said was possible. And he said, I know this is what I see you doing. But my heart's crying out for you to do more. My heart's crying out for you to do more. And I talked about the three dispensations that I would talk about today. Because as I mentioned, David was a prototype of our walk with God. This is where we start to get into the little crazy stuff. If David's hunger and his dispensation brought him to the point where God revealed things about himself from a future dispensation, well, there's a principle there. That our hunger in our dispensation can drive God to a point. What's the next dispensation? The millennial kingdom. Whoa. When Christ returns and takes his place on the throne, what am I? Well, I'll give you the punchline real quick. What am I trying to get at? Technically, it's possible for our hunger to go beyond so far of what we see right now to reach the peak of the dispensation of grace and move God to a point where he says, I'm going to get you to a place where you spiritually walk with me physically. I'm telling you right, well, it's possible. I'm a, this is going to sound crazy. You're hungry. You want to know what it feels like to be in the throne room of Jesus Christ manifested as God in the flesh sitting on the throne in Israel? I'm going to tell you today it's possible. You can't see it with your eyes, but this desire in here can get you to a place It just gets better. First Peter, first Peter, uh, chapter one, chapter one and verse one. I lost my bookmark. I'm still new at this. <laughs> first Peter, chapter one and verse uh, number three. Peter writes, blessed be Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is so crazy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance uncorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, 
who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, and then I want you to stop at verse 7, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. And verse number 7, that the trial of your faith, being more precious than of gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. I want to explain to you real quick what, what, what Peter's talking about right here because I felt like God gave me a revelation about this scripture. In essence, what he's saying, the visual image I got in my mind, uh, Brother Isaac, can you stand up? Was he's talking about the trial of your faith in these scriptures. And he, he references it so that the trial of our faith is to reach the point of the appearing of Jesus Christ. Jesus coming back. So in essence, it goes like this. When I take a step, take a step to me. In essence, it goes like this. You're walking on this earth and you're pursuing God and you start your faith starts to get tried. And you go through trial and temptation. Trial and temptation. You're pursuing God. You're pursuing God and trial and temptation. All the while, what you don't realize is that you're coming to the place, you're reaching a point. Because while you're coming this way, Jesus is coming this way. And the point is, you go through the fire so that you're ready when you reach this point to come face to face. We sing songs about it all the time. What a day that'll be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face. How? Because he saved me by his grace. Watch this. I want This isn't the point of my message, but I want to help someone right here because this is what I felt like God also revealed unto me. Ephesians 2 says that. It says, well, I want to help someone right here. Ephesians 2 says that by grace, we are saved through faith. And then before this passage, Peter writes, Peter's writing that the temptations, the temptations that you go through. Can I tell you that a trial of your faith is mistakes that you make as well? Often we hear this, we hear this word trial and we think of something that we're going through. We think of circumstances. But if you told me what a trial was, I would never tell you a mistake I made was a trial. That, and for us, it's not, it's not very similar. But that word trial there means testing. Not testing if we do right or wrong. That's why we're in the dispensation of grace. Testing our response. He's testing our faith because watch this by faith. I'm sorry, by grace, you're saved through faith. When God tests your faith, your ability to believe in grace starts to starts to go like this. It starts to waver. Well, ah, I might just have to walk in that for a second. See, <clears throat> when that faith starts to waver, your ability, the whole entire, the basis of grace is only by faith because grace is irrational. Love doesn't make sense, and the love of God really doesn't make sense. It's so, it's so you can't logically figure it out. The only way we can accept grace is through faith. By confessing, I believe God has forgiven me. I believe God is empowering me, no matter my mistakes. No matter what I've, well, no matter what I've gone through. No matter what I've been through. No matter what I've done. No matter how far I've gone. Grace 
Grace is what God gives us to enable us to reach his will that's outside of our possibility or our ability. But it's only attainable through faith. It's only attainable by believing in it. So when our faith gets tried by mistakes and failures, and when we feel like we've disappointed God, he's not watching your mistake. He's watching, how's that faith doing? How's that faith doing? Watch this. It's evident in the life of David. Second Samuel chapter 12, I believe it is, when Nathan comes to David and he confronts him on Bathsheba. He confronts him on his sin. Watch this. David's faith. He, he, probably, he probably didn't even know this. David's faith in the grace of God was so strong that he was bold enough to seek the face of God no matter his mistakes. And when he sinned, when he sinned, Psalm 51, he doesn't, he doesn't go to God and say, no, don't take my family. He doesn't go to God and say, no, don't take my possessions. None of that mattered to this shepherd boy who was on the throne of a king. He said, don't turn your face. What would happen to a church that was more concerned about sinning because of the face of God? than sinning because of right and wrong. We're more scared of sinning because we're scared of breaking the law. But what happens if we reach a place with God? Where when we fall, when we make a mistake, it's not about, don't shut up heaven. Don't take this from me. It's God, don't turn your face. Don't turn your face. Don't turn away from this relationship that we have. I know someone needs to receive that right now. Someone needs to receive that right now. Your faith is being tried and you don't know it. Your faith is being tested and all you see are mistakes. But what God is watching is your response. He wants to see if you'll seek him regardless of where you're at. And Peter writes about this. He writes about the trying of our faith. I believe it's so important. I believe our response is so important because as I explained at the beginning, at the, at the end of that 1,000 years, I'm not sure, I haven't studied it out, but I don't know if it says whether or not we'll already be a part of the kingdom of God, but I feel like there still could probably be a chance that when Satan comes back, unites the kingdom, there's still a possible risk for us to follow him. I could be wrong about that. That might not be the- theologically correct. But the reason why I believe that our response to the trial of faith to see whether we're going to give up or not, whether we're going to throw in the towel or not, is so important because of that appearing that we're coming to. And he wants to know if above all else, I'll pursue him. If above all else, I'm going to press forgetting those things which are behind and pressing towards the prize of the high calling. If above all else, my faith is not going to waver in the sense of I'm just flesh and blood. I'm just a frame made of dust. And regardless of that, I have faith in the sacrifice you made for me. So that when the day comes, above all else, we choose him. 
When the adversary comes and said, no, you can't do that. When David went to fight Goliath, his brother said, we know the scripture. I know the deviousness of your heart. God said, uh, David said, well, I know the grace of my God. And he walked out on the battlefield and fulfilled his destiny regardless of his mistakes that he knew he had committed. This scripture in 1 Peter is so critical too. I had you stop at verse 7. Can you put 1 Peter 1 and verse 7 up on the screen again? 1 Peter 1 and verse 7. It says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Watch this, verse number 8. Whom having not seen, you love. hold, Hold on a second, Peter. You're talking about the Christ that's coming back. And is going to appear. And he says, loving the Christ, which you haven't seen. Well, that almost sounds like an impossibility for my dispensation. Wait a sec. We got a prototype for that. His name's David. And what Peter's talking about right here is you love, though now you see him not yet believing you rejoice with unspeakable joy. I was glad when they said unto me, kind of sounds like that scripture to me. Let us go into the house of the Lord. David had unspeakable joy from a God that he shouldn't even have been able to experience. And what Peter's writing right here, this is the New Testament. We're in the dispensation of grace right now. Is he's talking about having a relationship with the Christ that hasn't even appeared He hasn't even come back. And he says, not only has he not come back, but you love him, seeing him not yet believing in his return. I've just, I've come to tell somebody today, it's possible. I don't know how. I can't wrap my brain around it. All I can do is make hypotheticals about it. But there's this, there's this place that calls And I believe it's the throne room of Jesus sitting in Israel. And he's saying, I wonder if you can love me even though you haven't seen me. I'm not talking about just loving God. I'm not talking about just loving, loving the Christ, loving the church. I'm talking about loving the physical Christ who you believe is coming back. It's crazy. It's out there, but it's a prophetic relationship with God. And here's uh, Jalen, you can come. Here's where I believe it amounts to. David was in the field and word gets to him that the, the, the Philistine giant is, is, is attacking or he's threatening and he's, he's, he's threatening Israel and they're looking for someone to fight him. And so David brings, he brings the food to his brothers. And when he decides to fight Goliath, he goes out and, and, and they, David doesn't say who's challenging Israel. He doesn't say who's trying to who's trying to do X, Y, Z. He says, is this the uncircumcised Philistine who defies the armies of the living God? F.B. Myers writes about this this scenario in his book about David. And he talks about the two reasons why David was able to defeat Goliath. One thing was his relationship with God. The second thing was his motive. 
Can I tell you, if your motive's not pure, you got to stop swinging at giants. You're not going to get them down. If your motive's not pure, you better stop throwing stones at giants. You're going to make what? You want to know why you got some giants in your life that throw persecution, affliction at you? It's because God knows that if he lets you kill them, it all go right here. Because after David killed Goliath, it said that the women began singing, Saul killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. Man, if we had that song sung about us, you know how lost we would be? If we have, well, I'll just go ahead and put it in the church today. So-and-so saved a couple souls, but this person, my God, he's got 87 Bible studies in only 24 hours in a day. I don't know how he does it. The reason why God won't let you conquer certain things is because the motive, he knows if he lets you go to those places, those places of victory, he can't trust you. But David was at such a place with God, he had two things that were so critical, his faith in God and his motives. You see, David goes out and the reason why David had such confidence that God, whatever, whatever stone he could throw, God was going to back up. Because he, when, when, when Goliath defied, well, I, my, I just, I wish somebody in the church would rise up. That when, 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 when these giants keep throwing stones at the church, when, I'm sorry, when they keep coming at the reputation of the church, not for the sake of the body of Christ, but I wish someone would rise up for the sake of God. David said, is there not a cause? Is there not a reason? And he goes out there and he had such faith and confidence in God that he was able to perform the feat that he did. And he had practiced. This wasn't something new. He had done this over and over again in the field. But in the field, while he fellowshiped with God, can I tell you, your fellowship with God is going to prepare you for the giants. It's not just the practicing the stones, because it was a two-part process for David. Not only was he practicing his stone throwing, but he was fellowshipping with God. So when the moment came, he was more... I guarantee you that if that if that giant took the flick of his finger and knocked David out, David wouldn't have cared. Because he was more pressed about the relationship and he was more pressed about the reputation of the God that he knew so well. The one that he had built a relationship with that he didn't even care about if he died or not. Because he said, you're not going to defy the armies of the living God. You're not going to come for his reputation. And it's here we find David, but what Peter is talking about is that it's possible for such a relationship. I mentioned earlier on that I believe that Jesus won't come back because the bride is too pressed about him coming back because of their circumstances rather than their hunger. He's too concerned. He won't come back for a bride that's only praying because of the circumstances around them that have changed. Come quickly, Lord. (laughs) 
He's waiting for a bride to say, I've gotten so close to you. I've sought your face so much. I've sought your presence so much. I've come boldly into the throne of grace. But it's not enough. My hunger is driving me to a place that's not possible. It's this place that the circumstances around me say I shouldn't be able to go to. But Jesus walked into the room. I want to know what it's like to dwell in the throne room of God. I want to know what it's like to look upon his face. When we had, we had school of Tyrannus here. And I believe actually, I think it was at the P7 CMI Summit's following school of Tyrannus. You want to know why Jesus can't come back? It's because his people have never seen Christ descend from the sky. And right now our hunger is only based off of what we can see and what we've been told about. And this is evident at this P7 CMI summit, brother Hector, he stopped and he said, I feel the gift of faith in the room. I feel, he said, somebody tell me a creed, just somebody tell me a crazy miracle. See what Jesus said, greater works than these shall you do also. I have a question for you. Jesus raised people from the dead, left and right. What's a greater miracle than that? What's a greater miracle than bringing someone up from the dead? And it's hard for us to think of one. So how are we supposed to do greater works if we can't even comprehend them? If we can't even comprehend a, 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 a crazier miracle? And someone, I believe it was Jonathan Boyer, he threw out something crazy he said i believe if you miss your bus god can teleport you teleport you from from where you miss your bus onto your bus and we think well that's a little uh, that's a little out out there that's that's a little too much teleportation I, i i mean that's just so name another greater thing we don't have a hunger for the return of god Because our hunger is being capped right now at what we've seen. And we've never seen Christ descend from the sky with an army. So how am I going to be hungry for that if I don't have any testimonies about it? Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. And the evidence of things not seen. what would happen I know this is a birthday service and so I'm going to tell you right now the greatest way you can honor that man of God is if we let a hunger saturate this church I realize I'm not talking to everyone I'm not talking to everyone today because there's only a few that 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 can really testify to this drawing of the spirit that says I'm not I'm not, I'm not just satisfied with church. I'm not just satisfied with with the relationship with God I have right now, but I feel this I feel this calling to a throne room. I feel this calling to this relationship with God that no one else has ever experienced before.
and I can't and I can't wrap my head around it but it calls me and it beckons me flesh cries out for the living God, for the living God. So incline your ear. If you're a guest here today and you've never experienced this relationship with God I'm talking about, and you want to experience it, you can in this place today. If you don't yet know God as a shepherd, I'm telling you, you can know him as that today. If you'll just stand and lift your hands, someone will come and pray with you. And just like David had such an amazing relationship with God, you can have one as well, but different from David. The Spirit of God will come down and it'll dwell inside of you. If you want that today, don't be afraid. There's no greater peace. There's no greater love. There's no greater joy. To seek your face, I'm burning and longing for you. Cause I need you, I need you. For nothing, no place, no one else will do. I need you, I need you. For you satisfy the longing inside. I need I need you for nothing, no place, no one else will do. I need you, I need you. You satisfy the longing inside. I need you, I need you for nothing, no place, no one else will do. I need you, I need you. Satisfy the longing inside Cause my soul longs and even faints for you And my heart and my flesh cries out for the living God For the living God So incline your ear with trembling and tears to the throne of grace to seek your face I'm burning and longing for you cause I need you cause I need you for nothing no place no one else will do I need you I need you for you satisfy Longing inside, I need you. I need you. Nothing and no place, no one else will do. I need you. I need you. You satisfy the longing inside.
let me let me have everyone's attention real quick. Just real quick. This is this is technically a birthday service. And I would feel really bad leaving it on such a heavy note, even though this is a beautiful response. But I'm going to tell you what I felt like God spoke to me in regards to this service. And this has significant meaning if you're aware of any type of the history of this church. But this is what I felt the Spirit of the Lord say. That this church has killed lions. And this church has killed bears. But the relationship that I'm calling them to is going to be to kill giants. The place that I'm calling them to, this church, I don't mean to be, we have promises, but Antioch Central, I'm telling you right now, under the fear of God and in the Holy Ghost, this church has giants that are to be slayed. And he's opening a door to a relationship with him that's going to take us to the place where he can trust us. It's not going to be through spiritual warfare. It's not going to be through fasting. It's going to be through seeking the face of God. He's trusted us with lions. He's trusted us with bears. But moving forward, there's giants that are currently defying the armies of the living God. And he's calling his army to a place of communion with him, of devotion and relationship with him, where he's going to trust us to walk out on a battlefield. If you believe that, lift your hands all across this place. I dare you to receive that. I dare you to receive that. I dare you to walk in that word. I dare you to walk in that boldness. I dare some young people to get a hold of God so much that the giants on your campus have nothing to do with you. I dare a person in this room to get a hold of God so much that no matter what the adversary throws at you, no matter how much they defy the armies of the living God, You say, you might be strong, but the God I know is stronger. The God I know, the God I've come to love is so much stronger. The God that I fellowship with in the secret place, when when the enemy camps around me, he's stronger. He's faithful to perform. He's faithful to deliver.